right, go ahead and grab a Bible if you don't already have one. If you need one, just raise your hand and we'll get one to you. My name is John Sherwood. I'm one of the leaders here in the Asheville Church Network. And we have been in a series in 1 Timothy, so we're going to be in 1 Timothy chapter 3. And uh, I'm going to start... Um, where do I want to start? I'm going to start in 1 Timothy 1 to remind and introduce chapter 3, and I'm going to invite Patrice up, who's going to read for us the rest of chapter 3. Chapter 1 and verse 3. I urged you then, when I went up to Macedonia, to stay there in Ephesus so that you may command certain people not to teach false doctrines any longer, or to devote themselves to myths and endless genealogies. Such things promote controversial speculations rather than advancing God's work, which is by faith. The goal of this command is love, which comes from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Some have departed from these and have turned to meaningless talk. They want to be teachers of the law, but they do not know what they are talking about or what they so confidently affirm. I wanted to read this to provide the backdrop of the letter, including chapter 3, where we'll be today. This provides the framework and the backdrop for what scholars call the Ephesian heresy. This is what's happening in the church in Ephesus, and Timothy, Paul's protege, is being instructed by Paul on how to deal with these false teachers. Let's read in chapter 3, verse 1. Um, so, I want to watch this video by the Bible Project that's going to kind of give us an overview of this entire book. One of the reasons I'm doing this is we're pausing right in the center of the book because as we read these things, just like we talked about last week, there are some things that this says that can strike us in some really like, I don't know, you fill in the adjective, difficult, grading, um, just it, it can be hard, right? And so the way that we interpret these passages is important that we see them in the context that they're in. And so I, I hope that this video will be helpful to that end. Paul's first letter to Timothy. Catch what he just said there? That to Paul, and by faith to God, how the church behaves is very important. How many of you have ever experienced some sort of hypocrisy from a Christian? You can raise them high, it's okay. Now here's the challenging question. How many of you have ever been that hypocrite? Okay. We've got to be honest here, right? And this is where the Holy Spirit is leading us through these ancient texts to transform us. Many of you have heard my origin stories of faith. For those that haven't, I was very turned off by Christianity and organized religion in general because of so much hypocrisy that I experienced, witnessed, and perceived. And I thought, I can go be a hypocrite without this God idea. And then, later in life, I was at a different place in my own heart and mind, and through providential circumstances, I ended up reading the text of the Bible, meeting some other young people in my early 20s who were living with life of character and integrity, who 
could visibly reflect what I was reading in an authentic and genuine, not perfect, but authentic and genuine way. And it blew my mind. And it forced me to a crossroads of what do I think about this? Am I willing to be transformed by this? Am I willing to submit myself to this other king? How the church conducts itself is vitally important for the witness of Jesus. And we have to be willing to let go of and shun this false concept that we don't represent Jesus to the rest of the world. Well, don't look at me, look at Jesus. Well, yes and no. People see Jesus through us, and we either authentically or inauthentically represent who he actually is. And if we're honest, we've all experienced that same dynamic personally with others and even with ourselves. And so here in chapter 3, in the context of dealing with this Ephesian heresy, there's three main sections I want to discuss here in chapter 3. The overseers and deacons in verses 1 through 13. The women in verse 11 through 13. And then the final conclusion of this poem and hymn. This is a helpful little diagram here that I'm sure you can't read. And even if you could read it, it probably doesn't make sense. And that's okay. But I want to use it for a framework for us to understand how to interpret these passages, right? We see here the, the pastoral epistles is what they're called. It's 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, these three books that are all in a row in most of our modern English Bibles. They're known as the pastoral epistles. Paul, writing pastorally to his protégés, Titus and Timothy, um, some scholars debate, actually, it might be one corpus of work. It's actually one body of work, some say, because there's a lot of similar threads. And this Ephesian heresy is what's undergirding all of it. And so you compare these three letters on several issues. You start to see themes and patterns arise that Paul is trying to combat these false teachers. Some versions might call them opponents in Ephesus. So he says that desiring to be an overseer is a good work. He says something similar in 2 Timothy 2, that these overseers should be above reproach and have good reputation with outsiders. This is in 1 Timothy chapter 3 and again in chapter 5. And that they should be one, man, one woman men or a man of but one wife or depending on how the translation stands there. So in each of these letters, 1st, 2nd Timothy, Titus, you see these things over and over again, and they're all contrasting something specific, and that is the opponents or false teachers, depending on what version you're reading. That these false teachers or these opponents, they're not good for anything. They're worthless, as in Titus 1, contrasting with the good works that God is preparing these overseers for. That they have brought reproach on the church, again in Titus 1, and the overall picture that you see of these opponents throughout the letters, that they're bringing shame and reproach upon the church because of their behavior. And he says, these leaders, these diakonos, these deacons should be different. They should be exemplary in their character and integrity. And he says that they forbid marriage and potentially even forbid childbearing, which is why 
We talked about last week in chapter 2, Paul's talking about women being saved through childbirth. All of these strange things that we read, right? Like, you read that as a 21st century American, women will be saved through childbirth, right? It's very simple to get misled and think that these are talking about things that they're not. So I'm trying to provide an interpretive framework for us. How do we interpret these passages? I want to submit that this is a good way, perhaps the best way to understand interpreting these passages today, that these are written for a historical context of what's happening in Ephesus with these false teachers and these opponents of the gospel. Now let's dive into chapter 3. 1 through 13 talks about whoever aspires to be an overseer desires a noble task. And then he goes through and lists out all of these character traits that these overseers or elders, presbytos, should have. And then in the same way, verse 8, these deacons should also have character and integrity in specific ways. And then he says in verse 11, in the same way, do you notice a theme here? He's contrasting opponents and what should Christians be like, especially those in leadership positions. In the same way the NIV here says, verse 11, the women. This language is ambiguous, whether it's talking about the women of the deacons in the prior verses, or if it's talking, I'm sorry, the wives of those deacons, or if it's talking about women who themselves were serving as deacons. Um, And we know that Paul uh, refers to a couple women by name in some of his other letters and applies this language to them of deacon. So there's, there's, there's dispute as to whether or not women should be deacons, essentially, is what this produces, right? And I have been in staff meetings at churches and been in circles where this is hotly debated and People come up with all kinds of proof texts to defend their position on why this person should be an elder or a deacon or not, or, you know, all the church governance. And, <laughs> and I just want to step back for a minute and to look at the bigger picture of why is any of this being spoken in the first place? Why would God, through the power of his Holy Spirit, decide to leave this text with believing followers of Jesus for thousands of years, what are we to do with this? I think having a framework where we understand Paul is specifically dealing with an Ephesian issue for this church 2,000 years ago is helpful. Does that mean that there's nothing that's applicable to us today? No, of course not. But it does mean that we cannot appropriate everything that it says one-to-one from their context to ours. So, the overall concern here, as we look at these, the NIV says, qualifications for overseers and deacons, I would, I would submit that qualities would be a better way of thinking through it. This is not a verbatim, line-for-line checklist of everything that an elder or, or deacon must possess. For instance, You could, if you take that approach, come up with the conclusion that, well, it says that an elder, an overseer, has to be a man of but one wife. So therefore, a single man cannot be an elder because he must be a man of but one wife. And also, conversely, you can't be a polygamist. You can't have more than one wife, which in the Roman culture would have happened. And in many cultures throughout the world to this day still happens. I don't think that Paul was telling Timothy that he himself, Paul, 
and Timothy, who were both single, were not qualified to be elders, much less Jesus, who was also single. So reading this in a strict fashion in that way can lead us to some conclusions that I think are erroneous. The way to read this is to see the overall concern. Paul's concern is that the church leaders be above reproach, that they not, like these opponents or false teachers, bring reproach on the church because of the way they live. They're to live with character and integrity. And for their context, this is what having character and integrity look like. It meant being faithful to their wife, raising their family well, being a person of good standing to the outside community and those that are not in the household of God, not being given over to great sinful indulgences like drunkenness, etc. Leaders in the church should have integrity. How many times do we see leaders in the church of Jesus not have integrity? How many times do we see scandal after scandal after scandal come out? I thought of, I created a slide at one point that had faces of big name people that you would know that have fallen to scandal. And that's not to demonize them, but rather to exemplify how common it is and how susceptible we are, especially as leaders, because we all have sinful natures. We all have desires in us that war against having integrity and character. But it does have an impact on a watching world. When we see leader after leader, right, whether it's Hillsong or the rise and fall of Mars Hill or Bill Heibel or Ravi Zacharias or the Duger family, name your scandal. It has an effect on what people think about Jesus himself. And it did for me. So I have to take a long, sober look in the mirror and say, John, how do people see Jesus in you? And is that view of Jesus distorted or authentic? And so I have to surround myself with all kinds of accountability measures, surround myself with people that can help me to be the man of character and integrity that not only God calls me to be, but that I want to be in my spirit and that you want to be in your spirit. The overall concern that Paul has is that church leaders be above reproach in their daily lives. And I would argue that that principle applies to all Christians, not just church leaders. Of course, it starts with those that lead, but it's for all of us to represent Jesus well. And in our current cultural context, where we see hypocrisy in the name of Jesus and scandal after scandal in Christian celebrities, this perhaps is as important as it ever has been. That to a watching world, and in our context in America, a watching country that was built on this false idea of America being God's special nation, a growing swell of hypocritical Christians have defaced the name of Jesus. And so now it has become not only in vogue, but downright true for people to reject Jesus because of so many examples that counter him. 
just like these opponents, just like these false teachers. And so there's one consolation we can have. We're not the first ones. It's not new. We won't be the last ones. There will always be opponents and a false representation of the gospel of Jesus. And ultimately, through the scriptures, we understand what's underneath that, that there's a spiritual war happening, that there is a spiritual battle happening at all times for every individual, for every community, for every nation and civilization. Until Jesus returns, we are at war. And Paul gives some instructions on how we are to fight. We are to fight not with the weapons of this world, he would tell the Corinthian Christians, but with a different set of weaponry. And here he says our weaponry is to have character and integrity to be blameless. The very end here, in chapter 3, in verses 14 through 16, he says, although I hope to come to you soon, I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, I love that, just in case I don't make it over to your house, all right, I'm going to send you a Marco Polo or a tweet or something so you know what I'm talking about. It was much more difficult for them to get around than it is for us. I was thinking about this randomly like yesterday. I was like, man, I own a vehicle. I put gas in it. We travel hundreds of miles in a day. James went to work over in Raleigh in the morning and came back and was feeding me dinner. That's hundreds of miles in hours. And how unique that is across human history. That for Paul to travel hundreds of miles would have taken weeks and been incredibly laborious and expensive and dangerous. I mean, you could argue that getting in a car is pretty dangerous too. But by comparison, Paul says, I'm writing you this just in case something happens because this is important. I want you to know. He says, so that you will know how people in the church, specifically in Ephesus, ought to conduct themselves. I think the ESV said behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Ask yourself if you're willing to embrace that about your life. That how you conduct yourself, how you behave is the pillar and foundation of the truth. That's, that's kind of hard, right? That's one of those ones where like, mm, can I phone a friend? Or, well, that's for you, pastor. You better, you better represent our church well out there. It's easy to want to obfuscate this one, right? To find a way to evade, like, no, 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 that's not, my life isn't that. That's someone else's life, someone more important someone more spiritual. The way that we conduct ourselves, Paul says, is the pillar and foundation of the truth. Then, what does he say after this? That the mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And then he goes into this poem. I want to touch on this connection here. Each local church, each local body of believers in Jesus has in itself the power to
to support and strengthen the truth by its witness through the lives of its members or to tear down that truth, to demean, disavow, discredit that truth. The lives that we live Monday through Saturday before we come here has a direct correlation to the truth and people perceiving and being drawn to that truth. I, I told you about the young men that God intersected my life with in my early 20s. And when this guy, Alex, would share about the life that he was living with his girlfriend, whom he'd been dating for years, and that they had never had sex, I was like, what? I literally thought that was impossible. I had no framework to understand that truth. That could not have been real. But because his life, his conduct, was in alignment with what he said he believed, it rang true. And it caused me to have to evaluate it and go, what do I really think about it? So now it makes me culpable. Now I'm accountable. Now I can't just brush it all off as like, ah, they all fake anyway, like I had previously experienced. When a guy in my neighborhood growing up in high school took me to a very popular national high school ministry that I won't name, as a worship leader who would go and sing all of the Christian songs, we would go beforehand and get high together and then go hit on all the women that were there. I was never drawn to any truth through that. The lives that we live, the conduct that we have, our behavior matters. Not just for our own soul and our own standing before Jesus, but for others as well. Paul would tell Timothy to watch your life and your doctrine closely because if you do, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Christians, Paul says, are supposed to distinguish themselves apart from the world and the kingdoms of the world by a lifestyle of holiness, a lifestyle that resembles Jesus' own lifestyle, a lifestyle of love, a lifestyle of peace, a lifestyle of truth and self-sacrifice. Not just mouthing a creed or saying I believe or I said a prayer and invited Jesus into my heart, but doesn't lead to a transformation of character, a transformation of life. This, Paul says, is not the gospel. He says the gospel that's mysterious is those who distinguish themselves as God's children because they demonstrate the reality of their faith through their lives, through their decision-making, through their choices. He says that this mystery from which true godliness springs is great. And then he gives this poem about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection I want to caution us with one thing here. We have the reality of our lives and our conduct matter. The temptation then is to try to white knuckle 
and through our own willpower make our conduct different. Paul said, that's hopeless. If we could live like Jesus without Jesus, there was no purpose for Jesus. He says, the mystery from which true godliness springs, our godliness, our behavior and conduct that reflects God springs from something that is not in us inherently. It's actually through Jesus himself. He appeared in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. He was preached among the nations. He was believed on in the world, and he was taken up in glory. Paul poetically says, it is Jesus from which our godliness flows. Don't white-knuckle it. Through our effort and striving and willpower alone, we will always fall short. How do we partner our effort and our will into the life and power of Jesus is a great mystery and something that we will strive and fail at until we meet him. But strive we must, wrestle we must, encourage each other we must, that through Jesus we can live godly lives. This was the conviction I came to in my early 20s. And I said, only through God could that guy do what he's doing. And I want it. And I pray that my life in some way has resembled such a thing to other people. So coming back to our 21st century American context, Paul's instructions about law and grace, Paul's conversion, the opponents here in Ephesus, the scope of salvation, men and women in church and leadership, elders and deacons, all these things that Christians uniquely find a way to argue about ad nauseum forever, all have one focus, to preserve the integrity of the gospel. These passages were not written in my estimation, for them to be bickered on about women's roles in ministry. Can a woman get up here and preach? Can she serve there? Can she sing on a microphone? And any number of things that I believe are quite insignificant. Compared to the singular truth that Paul is trying to get at here, as well as the rest of the pastoral epistles, and that is he is calling us leaders and those who are not to live lives of integrity that resonate with the gospel of Jesus and that do not create stumbling blocks for people to embrace the truth of Jesus. I've often wondered if I might have embraced the truth of Jesus earlier in my life had I more examples that resonated with that kind of integrity. And so, as we take our stand in this great mystery of the gospel, as we strive to live godly lives through the power of Jesus, this stand does not come primarily through our political affiliations and allegiances. It does not come through us trying to make the kingdoms of the world into the kingdoms of God but rather how we personally and collectively choose to live as foreigners and aliens, residents of a different place who choose to love even their enemies, 
who choose to sacrifice their own lives for the sake of their brothers and sisters, who are willing to stand for something that is so debated, that thing called truth. I hear all of the time that truth is so relative. Pilate's question to Jesus 2,000 years ago, what is truth? It's the same question that we keep wrestling with. We apply that question to every possible subject matter, gender, sexuality. Those are the hot ones in our culture right now. What is truth? The cultural answer is whatever you deem to be true is such. You and I have to decide what we think about that. These texts present someone who took a different position. Jesus' response to Pilate's question says, I am the truth. That's what Jesus told Pilate. And all who side with truth, listen to me. This is John chapter 18. That is very controversial to a world that says, you deem what's true. I don't know about you. I didn't have to be trained in great Greek philosophy or Stoic narrative to know that you can't be true and something else be true that says that's a lie and both be true simultaneously. You're just into a rabbit hole of ridiculousness now. But God is calling each of us to decide what we believe is true and to live in accordance with that. Let's pray together as we close.